Technology only gets you so far because transportation comes down to human behavior. The resource can only handle so many people until that resource is not the resource that we see in our pictures, we see in video, you know, people have memories of. Hello, and welcome to Travel Beyond, where we partner with leading destinations to explore the greatest challenges facing communities and the planet, surfacing their most inspiring solutions. I'm David Archer, Editorial Manager at Destination Think, and I'm recording from the coastal village of Dajingids, British Columbia, which is in Haida Gwaii, the territory of the Haida Nation. And I'm Rodney Payne. I'm the CEO at Destination Think. I'm recording today from Revelstoke, British Columbia, where I live. It's a city on the territory of four First Nations, the Sinaiks, the Shishwetmek, the Silks, and the Tunaha. On this show, we look at the role of travel and choose to explore destinations that are global leaders. We talk to the changemakers in those places who are addressing regenerative travel through action in their communities that often comes from the ground up. And we're actively looking for the best examples of those ground-up efforts to regenerate economies, communities, and ecosystems. So please get in touch with us if you have a story to share. Our previous two guests told us a little about the subject that is at the heart of travel, which is transportation. And now we're going to focus this episode on transportation challenges and solutions faced in Aspen and how the community has responded to those challenges. We're going to hear from Linda Dupriest, the Regional Transportation Director at the Elected Officials Transportation Committee, and she gives us a really fascinating look at the challenge over the past few decades and some of the solutions that have been put in place since then. And then Ken Murphy, the CEO at H2O Ventures, will tell us about his company's partnership with public services to manage transportation surrounding some of the Aspen area's most popular outdoor attractions. And often in tourism... People are leading tourism destinations or doing destination marketing or management. We think in terms of the visitor experience, what are people going to visit a place for? But the public services see themselves in terms of the local experience, of course, as they should. And so, as we'll hear from Linda, Aspen seems to have solved a local problem that all the visitors now benefit from as well. Rodney, what did you see or hear in Aspen that other places can learn from? Well, I think... Places that seek to attract visitors through tourism promotion and destination management inherently are adding load to their place, right? So you've got residents who need to move around for their daily lives and then you're adding stress or, you know, the need for capacity on top of that system, however people move around. And that can create problems over time that you really need to proactively plan for and manage. And that, you know, that might expose itself in terms of resident frustration with increased congestion or local environmental impacts or even health impacts. And interestingly, in Aspen, the impetus for really proactively tackling the local transportation planning was public health. There was a lot of pollution from the transportation and the work that they did decades ago now not only reduced that, but left the legacy for the visitor and resident experience. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear about that. 
In most of our episodes this season, it seems like people are really grateful for some of their leaders from decades past in Aspen, who not only had a vision for how Aspen could function, but they actually did something about it. And so, as we'll hear from Linda, this is the same situation in transit from back in the 90s. What do you think current leaders can take away from this? I think that the need for proactive planning, even if you haven't felt the pain, is imperative, right? If you can project that a transportation system may be creating adverse effects, now is the right time to be getting ahead of that problem. And now we'll go to your conversation with Linda Dupriest, Regional Transportation Director at the Elected Officials Transportation Committee. My name is Linda Dupriest, and I'm the Regional Transportation Director for the Pickin County Elected Officials Transportation Committee, which is an intergovernmental group of Pickin County, City of Aspen, and Town of Snowmass Village. What's the best biking trail in Aspen? Well, I'm a big road rider, so I like to park in Woody Creek and come up the Rio Grande Trail, come through town, and then go up to the Maroon Bells or to Ashcroft, which is on the road, but it's fantastic riding and scenery. So trails-wise, you really can't go wrong. The whole paved trail system here in Aspen's outstanding, and the city has connected it to some on-street facilities. What's the best place you've ever ridden a bike in the world? That, that question has two parts. <laughs> Bicycling in general, the best place, of course, from a transportation point of view, is the Netherlands. A couple years ago, three or four years ago, I spent about four months there over an 18-month period. And that bicycling-wise transportation recreation connectivity is our mothership for the whole world. Road riding, I would say the Beartooth Highway, Montana, up in the northeast edge of uh, Yellowstone National Park where it pops over into Montana from Yellowstone. It's a 15-mile climb up a glacier bowl. I'd have to say that's it. Mountain biking, the best mountain biking anywhere is Crested Butte, Colorado. Biking in Amsterdam is life-changing. It, there's no other way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Right? The infrastructure and the pairing with public transport infrastructure is just, it's like seeing the future mm-hmm. and it is exhilarating. And it's hard to say that about just commuting. Right? And it, it really is a good reminder of how, how infrastructure is so important. So yes. speaking of infrastructure, you've been in Aspen for three years. and you've... Well, I've, I've been in the Valley for three years. I lived in Glenwood. And I don't, unfortunately, get to live here, but I get to work here. Yeah. So, how's the traffic? I think the traffic and the way people behave in cars in Aspen is actually very civilized and manageable. Long-time Aspenites feel, feel pressure from all the people that are commuting into town and then in the winter and summer visiting seasons, a lot of people are driving through in cars. But the city of Aspen has done such a great job with their roads, their bike and pedestrian facilities, pedestrian crossing lights, and the way they manage their parking. They have a pretty extensive paid parking system, which sort of knocks down a lot of the driving there. I think for a small town in America, it's outstanding. But traffic is a very loaded word, and it's a very subjective concept. When we are in our cars wanting to go somewhere, 
we call traffic everybody else except us. And we don't want anyone in our way and we don't want anyone around us. When we're sitting on our front porch and we see cars going by our house, we don't want those cars going by our house. But traffic itself is unavoidable. The challenge is managing it with other mode choices. And this valley's done an outstanding job of that. The position I have, the EOTC, was created in the 90s. Some leaders here in the community at the time, Rachel Richards, who just went off of the council, a man named John Bennett, and some other folks that I haven't met yet, really pushed the idea of creating a transit system and just making transportation options possible in this upper valley. There was a couple things happening in the, in the U.S. at the time that triggered that action. Some federal funding programs that were in place that were newish. Some federal legislation called Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act, which started to shift federal funding into other modes besides just building highways and expanding them. And Aspen at the time had a poor air quality rating because it sort of sits in this canyon and there was pollution. So they needed to put some things into place to get the emissions down. And then that just led trickle-down effect to creating all of the wonderful the transit system we have here and some of the other programs in the Upper Valley. So localized air quality issues catalyzed action that also benefited the local and visitor experience and mm-hmm. the climate impact. Quality of life, visitor experience, air quality, all of it sort of coalesced at the same time. So beyond congestion, what other issues do cars bring to a place? There's a lot. So what's happened in America and other places, Australia is another place. It's similar to America and how their infrastructure built out. Having to accommodate cars, their size, their speed, in neighborhoods and parts of town where you want people to congregate and where you want people to feel comfortable walking and you want public spaces that feel good. Cars are just too big and too cumbersome and there isn't enough room to have cars in a space where you also want that space to be be designed for people and people experiences like this wonderful downtown core here. You do still want some car access, but particularly as time has gone by and cars are getting bigger and bigger, SUVs and big pickup trucks that people are choosing to drive for transportation, they're just big. And having enough places to park them and the space they take up on the road, it pushes out more human presence and human interactions. So that's a big one. You spend a lot of time thinking about mobility and there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of people in the world working on all kinds of different innovative approaches to how we move people and things around. And there's people pushing on policy, right? And, and pushing mm-hmm. for change to make more human-centered places and really easily access places. When you look 10 or 15 years out, knowing everything you know, what do you think the world could look like? Towns like this in bigger cities that get it, that understand that we just don't have enough room to put more cars, it looks very bright. Aspen has done an outstanding job with, in fact, I don't know if you know this data, but between the transit system, Aspen has an internal transit system, and then 
the whole valley is serviced by RAFTA, Roaring Fork Transportation Authority. That's the big bus system in this valley. And also down the Colorado River Valley towards Rifle and Western Garfield County. They have been able to hold the traffic volumes coming into Aspen roughly at the same level they were at 1993. So 1993, when they formed the EOTC, and then they started investing in all of these transportation options, they've been able to hold those volumes, which is remarkable. It's an astounding achievement. And that's what, you know, our goal is, is to not let it creep up any higher than that, while still making this an attractive place to visit and tourists and the ski industry and, and workers coming into town and, and all of those essential transportation needs. Aspen has a transportation program and they work with employers to get people out of cars. They have a car share program. We have bike share. They're very forward thinking and aggressive in this town. How do you change hearts and minds around showing people that there's a way better way of doing things? And, and getting past those sort of biases and cultural values? The first thing you have to do is invest in, in the transportation options. Infrastructure, transit systems, bicycling and walking, but you also at the same time have to disincentivize driving. And as you know from having been in the Netherlands, they tax the heck out of cars. You can own a big SUV, you can buy a big pickup truck, but you're going to be taxed and it's really high, just for the extra space that vehicle takes up in that little country and the extra gas that it's going to require. So, you know, you have to provide the infrastructure. That takes leadership, and it takes bold leadership. You have to make driving more uncomfortable. There's always going to be a chunk of people that are not going to make that leap into an alternative. Some are lifestyle reasons. Some are self-image reasons. Some of them are reasons such that they have complicated lives. They've got kids to drop off and pick up. They have to run a lot of errands during the day, all of these things. But the infrastructure, the land use policies is a big part of it too. In the U.S., of course, we have land use policies, parking requirements that have created sprawl. In some parts of the U.S., land is cheap. People decided they didn't want to live in density. They want to have their suburban home and the roads have to follow that. And then once you build the highway that follows the development, more development follows the highway, and it's a self-perpetuating system, then you end up with the congestion and too many cars and angry people, and you have to try to go back and then correct for some of those trends since in this country post-war that we started to do. And you know from being in the Netherlands, they also started doing that too. Yeah, if you contrast Rotterdam with Amsterdam. Rotterdam is where I spent a lot of time, and they are catching up, but Rotterdam was bombed in the war. And so they lost a lot of their beautiful, you know, medieval city centers that the other towns in the Netherlands have, and they just started to go the whole sprawl car way. But as you know, just in the history of bicycling in Holland, a bunch of activists in the 70s, you know, mainly it was kids were being hit by cars and they went no not in our country and they started to back that up and change some of those trends and work really aggressively on a balanced system when communities get to a point where 
people don't need to own cars because it's just easier and cheaper to get around without them. What are we going to do with all the parking spaces? Well, the places where people are going to make that change already don't have a lot of parking spaces. And they tend to also have governments and activists that have already started, that have been sort of for decades working on the infrastructure to make it possible not to have to rely on a car or maybe a family can have one car. It's a lifestyle decision that a lot of people will never make. But younger folks are moving to those types of places and choosing that lifestyle. And if the public transit investment has been substantial and there is places they want to go, Portland, Oregon is an outstanding example of in the early 90s, they started combining aggressive federal funding for transportation options with building out their bike network with light rail and transit and at the same time getting rid of parking minimums, doing livability design in certain neighborhoods. And that's probably the best example in the U.S. of a city that just really went after it at at one point and just hasn't stopped. There's a gentleman in our field, a congressman from Oregon, uh, Earl Blumenauer. He was just in a Slate article. And they called him the biggest bike dork in Congress. I worked with him many years ago on federal transportation legislation when I worked in the bike industry. He was on the city council. He started pushing all of those issues. Then he got into Congress, started pushing the federal funding at that level. How do you want to see transportation in the Roaring Fork change? I wouldn't say that it needs to change so much as we are trying to do more of the things that are already working well. Like many cities and towns in America, we here have a challenge, our transit system RAFTA, in being able to hire and keep drivers and bus mechanics and staff because of the you know exorbitant high cost of living in this area. In our valley, the housing is so expensive that people that have to live further away from their jobs which requires more transit service. RAFT is really working hard on that, trying to create more housing, but it, it's, it's really difficult. One of the elephants in the room around transportation is how energy intensive it is to move people around. And the world is grappling with, you know, rapidly accelerating climate change. How do you think about that? And what's the opportunity to clean our transport system? The challenge with that is that The system that gives people the most ultimate freedom, and if you're talking about mountain towns and resort towns, we move here to have freedom to go whenever we want, wherever we want. We want to go to the ski hill. We want to go to the trailhead. We want to go to the lake. We want to do whatever we want to do. That is directly in conflict with creating the most efficient transportation system, which is public transportation, bicycling, and walking. Driving your own personal automobile is just highly inefficient from a cost standpoint, from a safety standpoint, from making space in public infrastructure for it to the environmental cost. So that's the biggest problem right there because even environmentally conscious people, and I consider myself one, most of my life I have not driven a car to work. 
I've chosen to live close to my job and I rode my bicycle or took transit. You move to a mountain town and you want that freedom. You want your car. You want to be able to get around and go wherever you want to go. And I think that is a very difficult piece for a lot of people. Is the answer that we need to slow down or part of the answer? Modern people that want to live their lives to the fullest, I don't think they're going to slow down. We all want to grab every bit of life that we can, particularly when you move to a place like this. Um, I think our valley, our transit system, and the communities that have made a commitment to this have shown that efficient transportation can fit in with a mountain lifestyle. You know, RAPTA creating, or Aspen Ski Company, even before RAPTA was around, creating this ski buses, and that grew into RAFTA, which now operates ski shuttles in between the four mountains. When you get on a bus to come up valley to go to your job in winter, you're going to have skiers in the aisles. Everyone's on the bus together. That has certainly helped tremendously. In this unique environment where you have snowmass, then you have buttermilk, which is right outside of Aspen, then you have highlands, which is almost in, but off that way and then you have Aspen Mountain right in the middle of town and visitors coming and staying in Aspen or skiing in Snowmass or vice versa or they can ski half a day in Snowmass and half a day at Buttermilk and they have that freedom to go around. That's all been possible to the extent that it is because of the transit system and the way Aspen Ski Company has worked with RAFTA and worked with the communities. So that's just exemplary um, and shows a lot of hope. What do you think that Aspen can teach other communities around the world? The very existence of the organization I work for, EOTC, in that they decided to work together. The EOTC is essentially a sub-regional transportation planning group that they created voluntarily and created a taxing engine for it. That is unusual in the U.S., in rural areas. In the U.S., transportation planning is mandated by the federal government. You have to do it at any level of government, but it's a mandate if one of your communities at least has 50,000 people in it. We don't have that here. And in rural areas, you often don't see communities get together to do that. And the fact that this upper valley, the leadership here that did it all the way back in the early 90s is remarkable and it's unique. So it takes recognizing that transportation is regional in nature. It's not just happening in your town. And also acknowledging that Aspen in particular and Snowmass as well, highly desirable nature of this town and the, the kinds of people who can move here and create this amazing second homes and, and the international tourism that comes here, your workforce can't live here. You know, most of them, us, <laughs> have to commute in from someplace else. So that has allowed Aspen to have a workforce to service its tourist industry, but it's also given opportunity to people like me who live someplace else but can then have the opportunity to work in this market which I feel very fortunate to do. So all of the workers that are coming down here are 
you know, taking advantage of the economic opportunity that this place has. When you think about all the different developments and innovations, technology and different types of transportation, what are you most excited for? The technology that allows bike sharing, for instance, a smartphone-based way to pay for your transit ride, the parking technology. Aspen's core parking system collects so much revenue that it funds a big chunk of their transit. And you have the kiosks and the way that you can just pull up, get out, pay with your credit card, or you can pay ahead of time with your phone. And then the enforcement comes along, reads your license plate, knows how long you've been here, collects the revenues or the fines or whatever, generates money to go back into the system. That all has been fantastic. There is carpool technology that's kind of not really ready yet. It can detect how many people via smartphone are sitting in a car and could give that group of people in that car a preference for an HOV lane, say. The tolling that we see in other places. One project that has been discussed here it came out of a mobility task force that the Aspen Institute put on about five or six years ago. And the EOTC actually has it as one of our work items in the next couple of years, looking at doing congestion pricing like they did in London and Singapore and they're going to introduce in New York City and lower Manhattan. That's an inter very interesting, controversial but interesting technology there. I think those are the things right now. Really, technology only gets you so far because transportation comes down to human behavior and people having choices. And if they don't have choices, they won't be able to make that choice and they will go back to driving their car everywhere. Technology is exciting, but there's a limit to it. Yeah, it has the ability to remove some of the friction that you described and make us a lot more efficient in the way that we move around and it, it really comes down to values right and what what gives me a little hope is that the values of younger generations are, are shifting oh yeah we need the kids screaming definitely well thank you for making time in your day to come and talk to me about mobility here in aspen And that was Linda Dupriest on the region's transit network. And now for a look at improving the visitor experience through transportation. Here is Rodney speaking with Ken Murphy, the CEO at H2O Ventures. Could you tell me your name and what you do? Ken Murphy. I am the owner of H2O Ventures and Adventure Outdoors. Tell us a little bit about where we're sitting today and why it's significant. We're sitting at Aspen Highland Ski Area, you know, historically known as some of the best skiing in the country. And it's also the entry to the Maroon Bells, which is a kind of an iconic Colorado destination, if not a U.S. destination for the National Forest. And it's been used now as the sort of the centralized point to filter people up to the Maroon Bells. Can you tell me a little bit about the transportation challenges that Aspen has experienced over the last decade? 
whether it be transportation in and out of Aspen, I think it's just the volume of people. And we're constrained by Mother Nature. And we were in a valley surrounded by the most beautiful mountains. We, it's not like we have multiple roads, highways, access points to get here. So when you add a volume of people that want to come and see what we're lucky enough to live in, then we're going to have transportation issues, whether it be into our communities, whether it be parking, whether it be into the national forest like the Maroon Bells. What's improving? I call it managed recreation. The first goal of managed recreation is protecting the environment. Second, protecting the experience. So if we can somewhat limit the amount of people visiting these areas, yeah, we're going to protect that resource. But again, by limiting it too, we're going to protect that experience. You know, this isn't Central Park. This is a wilderness scenic area. And who wants to, to be in the mountains with thousands of people looking at the Maroon Bells? It's got that heavenly feel to it. And I think with managed recreation, we've not only as say protecting the resource because keeping the volume of people down, but when people get up there, they can take in the beauty of the area. Yeah, a destination like this really trades on its natural environment. Right? Exactly. That is, what are your thoughts about the urgency of solving the challenges around congestion and transportation? Well, it started with COVID here. When COVID hit, we had the social distancing issues. And then how do we maintain the social distancing? Well, the best way to do that was through a reservation system and manage the amount of people that could be on a bus. Uh, and then from there, we saw the successes of that whereby the amount of people that visited the areas we could control. But not only could we control, but we could also communicate to. So we had a more prepared visitor. When the visitor comes to the Bells now, they've received multiple communication, whether it be emails or call center. So they're more prepared. They're arriving better prepared for the weather, the conditions. And so overall, I think it's been a success. What's been the toughest challenge to overcome? messaging getting the message out that you need a reservation you know a lot of international visitors arrive here jump in their car arrive at the bells we're on maybe unaware that we have a reservation system so having that balance and maintaining that that possibility of a walk up and managing the system that you do have the ability to get the walk on still on they may not get on the time that they want but the goal is to still get them out that particular day and i think that's been the biggest challenge just because People come from all around the world to our destination. And, and how do you message that? How did you decide to get involved in solving issues with transportation and congestion in the area? Well, I've been involved in the outfitting side. So the river operations and outdoor recreation in general. And the river industry has sort of led the way in, in managed use. You know, for instance, everyone knows about the Grand Canyon and how awesome it is to raft through the Grand Canyon. And that has an, a certain amount of people that can go down the river at any one time or during a whole season. Well, there's other rivers all around the country that have that limited use. So my background in that sort of managed use of water recreation, we sort of took that to the, to the hiking, to the access to the Maroon Bells and some other operations such as Hanging Lake, which is another iconic destination that we help manage. Uh, the biggest success too also would be the private-public partnerships. You know, we're the private entity managing or helping manage public lands. And that can be a controversial point in itself. But I think between what we do best, what the Forest Service does best, the city of Aspen, Picking County, uh, and 
we've all come together to achieve a common goal, which is to make it accessible. Again, protect that resource and it works really well. And the success of the private partnership is probably the biggest success of this area. So let's back up a little bit and talk about Maroon Bells. For people who may not be familiar with it, can you describe what Maroon Bells is and the challenge that you experience? Well, Maroon Bells, it's a vast property of the Forest Service, just on the outskirts of Aspen. It's got this incredible mountain peaks and with this most beautiful lake at the bottom. I suppose you can divide it into two areas. We have our scenic area, which is more for our day visitors. And then we have our wilderness area, and there's so much camping, overnight camping. We've got Conundrum Hot Springs in there. And then we've access to other communities. The, you know, it's a very popular hike over to Crested Butte or Crested Butte over to Aspen too. There's also a lot of recreation, different forms of recreation. We've got hikers, climbers. So it's balancing all of that and, and being able to appeal to all those different demographics when it comes to access and use and transportation in and out of the bells. And can you briefly describe the management systems that are in place now? Yeah, so Forest Service manages the resource. That is their resource. H2O Ventures, our company, we manage the back end. So we're managing the call center, the reservation system. Our staff is on site at the transportation depot at, at Aspen Highlands. And we're there to load people onto the bus, answer questions, point them in the right direction. And then we're also there to communicate. For instance, the Forest Service reached out to us last year and said, our trash is being overloaded. Can we message, pack it in, pack it out? So we were able to, through text messaging, through emails, hey folks, reminder, please pack it in, pack it out. And then, you know, we were able to make huge gains. Unfortunately, we impacted Transportation Depot at Highlands because everyone was bringing their trash back here and putting it in the dumpsters here and overflowing from here. But at least we move the problem from one place to another place. And then now, how do we solve that from here then? We have to be able to adapt and change accordingly, whether it be Mother Nature throwing us for curveballs or whether it be the volume of people. I think right now we're trying to figure out, well, what's the volume that the scenic area can accommodate and how do we efficiently move people up and down? And then there's other balances, whether it be the volume of bikes now and e-bikes. The development of e-bikes has made the Maroon Bells a little bit more accessible for people that may not have ridden a traditional bike just because of its altitude and the distance. E-bikes now have made it a lot easier, which has its own challenges because now you've got the balance between e-bikes and buses on a, on a small scenic road. We figured out we have to educate the e-bikers and talk to them about being safe on the road and single file and being aware that there's large shuttle buses heading up there. And part of the solution, has it been about limiting private transportation? There is private transportation that already exists that has permits because you need a permit to operate on the Forest Service. It's balancing that and figuring out what each entity needs. I mean, the private entities have a certain demographics that they appeal to. And then the mass groups, yeah, that that works well with our public transportation. And that's the other thing in the, in, in this private-public partnerships. Not only have we got government and county government and U.S. Forest Service and agency, and the transportation is run by our public transportation system. So that's RAFTA. So again, it's all these units working together and working really well together. I mean, we haven't had any really issues. Certain entities will say, well, we're having an issue here, and we're able to adapt and change and rewrite the, the plan. 
And how have you gone about determining the carrying capacity or optimum level of visitors? And is that dynamic? It is, and that's where the Forest Service is evolving. I mean, they're going through a comprehensive plan right now, figuring all that out. When they come up with their access numbers, and that's that balance between the county and the Forest Service, what can the road accommodate? There isn't a, a bike trail system up to the bells right now. That's one of the things being discussed about how do we develop a bike trail there. So they'll develop that use number, and then from there, probably pass it down to us and say, okay, this is your limits, coordinate the reservation system based on those limits. A bus only has a certain capacity, and you know, there are only so many buses you can run efficiently within a day. You mentioned earlier visitor experience. What sort of feedback are you getting from visitors? Wonderful. You know, yes, those who don't get a reservation or don't get a reservation at their particular time, they may not be as happy with, but the people that get up there, they really feel like this is a beautiful wilderness scenic experience versus a public park in a city or urban setting. This is not an urban setting. This is the Rocky Mountains, and people are very happy with that experience. And what about the residents? What's their reaction been? And is there any sort of preferential access for residents? There hasn't been as yet, no. I mean, there's a lot of residents that ride their bikes up there and they're not impacted. I suppose the biggest thing for residents is that impulse. You know, it's taken away that impulse and it's obviously got an expense. When you have a, a system in place and transportation and staff and call centers, there obviously has to be a, a price point. And I think the Forest Service and the county and the city work on with Rafter what the price point is, is fair and equitable to all parties. And I suppose that where the locals, if they've been here for a long time, have said, oh, used to be free to go up to the bells. Unfortunately, some programs, you know, that has to be paid for. But I think the price is fair and equitable. What are some of the other challenges you've noticed in the community? You've been here a long time. What have you seen? I suppose it's our growth. And then how do we accommodate that growth within a narrow valley? I mean, we can only build so many houses. Uh, we can only accommodate so many roads. We have full-time residents, part-time residents, day visitors. How do we balance all that volume with the limited infrastructure, not based on, you know, can we build more? No, I mean, Mother Nature and, and our geography sort of prevents us from building more. So if you think about the infrastructure challenges and the housing challenges, if you're in charge for a day, what would you do? How would you fix it? I think there has to be a balance. We found this year a really unique way for housing. We partnered up with Aspen Valley Ski Club, where their staff like to chase the snow. They're here for the winter time, But the club itself didn't want to carry an apartment for the whole year. Well, I only need it for the summer. They only need it for the winter. And the balance of the spring and fall between there. So we partnered up with them and we actually got employee housing that it's a shared use. Again, it's that, that flexibility. So they'll take it for the winter, we take it for the summer. And that's been a wonderful success. There's a lot more opportunity to do that. Do we keep building to provide employees housing? Or do we come up with a balance of how much business do we actually really want? And how much housing do we actually need? Can you talk about how you work with the ACRA and Eliza's team? Yes. So when we got involved with both Maroon Bells and Hanging Lake, our business model is that the private entity should never be front and focused. This is public lands. We're, we should be behind the scenes. So we don't have a website. If you try to look for H2O Ventures, it, we're difficult to find. We believe that the 
reservation system should sit on the chamber website. It should be owned by the community. So having it on the chamber website maintains that oversight. So you're the back end for the parks and the tourism and you make things happen in the background, but they're the front end for the visitor. Exactly. And that's the way we feel that, that these public lands should be managed. You know, we all have our skill sets and I think the Forest Service and the city and the county, they know our skill set in the sense of customer service. We move people in recreation anyway in our independent business. And so we can work it from behind the scenes. And what's the business model for you? Is it something that's, that's interesting? And- oh, fascinating. I love the problem solving. I love, here's the issue. What would you do if you were in charge for the day? And then we give the ideas. For instance, no one had an idea of how many bikes were heading up to Maroon Bells. It's been difficult to quantify. Yes, you can put strips across the road, but people are going to be doing 360s around those strips and so on. So they came to us with that problem last year, and we developed an RFID chip that actually is in all of the commercial e-bikes in town that access the Maroon Bells. We installed scanners at the Welcome Center when they go through in the ranger station, and then we were able to quantify how many bikes were going up there and how many bikes for each company. So that's where the public entities reached out to a private entity. I mean, that's what we do. We're entrepreneurs, we problem solve, and the system seems to be working very well. It's back in action this year. So after a few years of of operating, the Forest Service, the county is going to have a number of data that they actually can then maybe decide, do we limit use? Do we increase use? How do we deal with the volume of bikes going up there? There's a lot of places around the world struggling with congestion of remarkable experiences. What advice do you have for them? Everything can be achieved. One of the best things we ever did is we have a facilitator. So we have all of our stakeholders that are working to make the Bells and Hanging Lake a really good project. But behind the scenes, there's another entity. That's the Volpe Center. And the Volpe Center has a facilitator that has no skin in the game. They're just there to keep our meetings efficient, keep us on task. And I think what made it successful was we had a facilitator. There was no benefit for the facilitator to keep us on task. It wasn't as if the chamber was was managing our meetings or the county or the private entity. Having that outside facilitator has been, I think, a a real positive to the group. So I'm going to summarize what I think I've learned and heard is that there are going to be some gems in the world that are going to get so popular that not everybody who wants to see them will be able to see them on that particular day. And so you have to start managing the volume of visitation according to the carrying capacity in various bottlenecks of those places. And that you found a solution here by bringing an independent facilitator together to help foster a partnership between the tourism entity, the forest service, and a private entrepreneurial group with experience in managing volume. And that's resulted in an ongoing mutually beneficial relationship that helps the visitor experience and over time the resident experience as well. Yes, I think what the major point is, the first step was protecting the resource. The resource can only handle so many people until that resource is not the resource that we see in our pictures, we see in video, 
you know, people have memories of. And it's maintaining that. We want somebody who visited Maroon Bells 30 years ago that maybe, you know, has that memory of this beautiful lake and pristine lake with not so many people there has come back now 30 years later and because of the operating plan is still experiencing that when maybe five, six years ago, prior to the operating plan, they would have got up there and said, oh, this is more like an amusement park and we never want to be that. Yeah, so the primary objective needs to be protecting the resource first. And then protecting the experience. And then protecting the experience. Yeah, and it's not really just managing transportation, it's, it's the customer service. Uh, the Aspen brand, starting with Aspen Ski Company, is built on incredible customer service. Taking that and putting that into the operating plan of Maroon Bells has been the success. Aspen's built on quality customer service, Maroon Bells is going to give you that great customer service too. Last question for you. What do you think Aspen can teach the world? Great question. Customer service. I mean, we've got it dialed in here. But also, Aspen is very protective of its resource. And it's not all about the volumes of people. It's protecting that resource, maintaining that resource and what we're used to seeing and finding the balance for the amount of visitors that want to come here. I really appreciate you taking time this afternoon to come and sit with me and talk. I think what you've done and what you've learned is so important for other people to hear about who are facing similar natural resource challenges. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. It's been my pleasure. This has been Travel Beyond presented by Destination Think. We'd like to thank Aspen Chamber Resort Association for sponsoring this season. You can find previous episodes of Travel Beyond and more information about this one at destinationthink.com blog. My co-host is Rodney Payne. This episode has been produced and has theme music composed by me, David Archer. Danny Garapi recorded this season's interviews with Rodney on site in Aspen. Sarah Raymond Dubuie is co-producer. Lindsay Payne, Annika Rotiola, Katie Schreiner, and Kaylee Wallace provided production support. You can help more people find our show as always by subscribing and by leaving a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Next time, we'll speak with Auden Schendler, Senior Vice President of Sustainability at Aspen Skiing Company. A strong focus on legitimate system scale action is really important and we want to play on that. We don't want to play on, you know, day-to-day token environmental work. We want to go big. See you then. And one last note about Aspen. I'm Eliza Voss, and I should note that we are recording in Aspen, Colorado, the ancestral territory of the Uncompahgre tribe of the Ute Nation. We honor the inherent stewardship Native people have for the land, waters, and air that our residents and visitors continue to have the privilege to revel in.